Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Hello, and welcome back to FT Science with me, Andrew Jack. On the show this week, using science to detect fakes, study art history, and help restore old master paintings. One very particular development that's taken place in the last decade or so is the increasing use of what's called non-invasive technology to study works of art, where no sample is required to tell you something about the material nature of a picture. And concerns that the current European regulatory system for medical devices such as heart valves and artificial hips may be good enough for kettles and toasters, but is not sufficiently rigorous for life-saving healthcare equipment. In effect, the current regulatory system says my device is the same as X's, and so because it's the same, it will perform the same, and it meets some technical standards, but actually you don't have to show that it's got superior benefit in humans. With me in the studio today is our regular contributor, Diana Garnham from the Science Council. And also joining us today, almost 30 years since AIDS was first identified in the US, is the new executive director of the International AIDS Society, Bertrand Audouin. So tell us first of all, Bertrand, what exactly is the International AIDS Society? The International AIDS Society is an HIV professionals organization. We basically bring together about 16,000 members from all over the world, and they are scientists, doctors, nurses, activists, people who work on the ground on prevention, care, and treatment in every country in the world. And we also organize the uh, International Pathogenesis and Treatment and Prevention Conference every other year. Next one will be next July in Rome. And we co-organize the International AIDS Conference. And the next one will be in Washington in July next year. That's all been now absolutely confirmed, has it? Because there was this was debate about HIV-positive people and whether they could even come into the US in the past and get visas and so on. That's all been cleared out of the way, has it? Well, yes, it has. It's not thanks to the IAS, I must say, but thanks to the, the administration in the, in the US that lifts the ban on, on travels for HIV-positive people. And that's one of the priorities of the IAS, too, to work on HIV and human rights. So that sort of makes sense that we get there at this moment in time. And... Next month is actually 30 years since AIDS was first identified or diagnosed in a bulletin of the CDC in the US, wasn't it? What are your reflections on that three-decade period since then? Well, I would say that we've gone a long way and we've made a huge difference in fighting the disease. If you look at the speed at which science has worked on the HIV field. It's been very quick, really. We found treatments in just 15 years after discovering the virus. At the same time, we haven't gone far enough. When we can put one more people on treatment in the world, to get infected at the same time. So we're not going fast enough. We need to do more. What's been amazing in the fight against it and still is, is that we managed to bring together people from very different backgrounds and doing very different jobs. And they all come together and try to find a common ground to work on and 
try to go beyond the tensions and the different points of view that they have. And that can be used as an, as an example to fight other diseases. And you've come in now as the new executive director. How are you going to shake up the IAS? I'm not sure I need to shake up the IAS. The IAS is shaking up itself quite good, you know. But I think the, the priorities at the, the IAS are very interesting and very uh, up to the point, actually. One of them is working on cure research. Then we have priorities on human rights and HIV, and that is very important, even targeting HIV professionals that have to deal with harassment and discrimination in their own countries. We want to focus on drug policies and drug use and lifting bans on needle exchange programs, for example. We want to work on implementing more social science political science and implementation science all over the world. And that's what we need if we want prevention and care programs to be more efficient in the future. Because as I said, we've met a few successes, but we need to be more successful in the programs we implement. Diana, you, you hear obviously then for the AIDS community, an awful lot of excitement and activity, but also not just around the science, but the advocacy and so on as well. If you were comparing a contrasting with perhaps some other parts of the scientific community, what lessons would you draw? Do you well, think? I think there is an important lesson here of seeing HIV AIDS not just as a health issue. It is a public policy and it's a training issue. It's about sharing ideas. It's also international. I mean, that's true for tuberculosis. And I remember that Mark Wolpus at the Wellcome Trust said we needed to do this over maternal health as well, which wasn't so much a health issue, but it was a public policy issue. So there's potentially a lot to learn. I don't envy you getting the professions to work together because, of course, you do range across the policy social scientists right the way through to the scientists, and that's quite a difficult mix. I was going to ask you, what's the next big scientific? You, sa you said you didn't think scientific issues was the big issue at the moment, but actually the spread of HIV remains a big concern, and that isn't just about public policy. No, it isn't. You're quite, you're quite right. But I, I would say two points about that. The first one is that you're right in saying that we need to keep on having political issues, social issues and scientific and care issues working together to get a more efficient response to the AIDS epidemic. At the same time, there is a huge scientific and medical aspect to, to the whole epidemic at the moment. We're working hard, scientists are working hard on the way we can use treatment as a prevention tool more efficiently. There are a number of studies running and there have been a few results published recently in the previous weeks or months uh, about the efficiency of early treatment to curb the epidemic and to prevent new infections. That's definitely an area where we will need to work in the coming months or years and that implies the scientific world that will also imply the political leaders and decision makers because that would mean investing more money on access to treatment now in order to be able to invest less in treatment on the long run in like 10 or 15 years because there will be less HIV positive people. We also need to work with health economists on that. That's what we did 10 years ago when we wanted to implement access to treatment programs in the global south, and it worked. I think we need to bring health economists on board again. Now, let's hear our regular contribution from BMJ. This week, Duncan Jarvis reports on the practice of substantial equivalence, which allows manufacturers of medical devices to make tweaks without having to go through lengthy clinical trials. Thanks, Andrew. Dr Tom Joyce at the University of Newcastle.
I'm a bioengineer here in the School of Mechanicals and Systems Engineering. My research interests concern artificial joints, hips, knees, shoulders, fingers. He and a group of surgeons have been looking into the ASR, a type of artificial hip. The surgeons, who implant their hips, noticed that patients were coming back for a replacement earlier than expected. When the implants were replaced, Tom looked at the old ones and found out that there had been wear on the metal surfaces of the hips caused by them rubbing together. Many of the companies use a process called substantial equivalence. So essentially they say, we've got a new product here, it's substantially equivalent, very similar to an old product that is successful, so can we introduce, hopefully, a new small change to improve things for patients? The problem with the SR is, you know, that was claimed, there was no clinical trial, we have a situation with almost 100,000 ASR devices implanted worldwide. Things have gone very wrong. And a clinical trial presumably would have prevented that. This isn't a case of a device company operating outside the law and circumventing rules on testing. Depew, the manufacturer, complied with all the regulatory rules that govern medical devices. Well, I think the interesting thing is that officially everything's been fine. These devices have been designed by good engineers. They've been tested to international standards. All these checks and balances were meant to prevent such a thing happening, and unfortunately they haven't. So I think that the problem is, unfortunately, throughout the system. That system is different around the world. In Europe, the MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, approved new drugs and medical devices. In the USA, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, carry out the same role. The exact rules are different but the common idea is that of substantial equivalence. In effect, the current regulatory system says my device is the same as X's, and so because it's the same, it will perform the same, and it meets some technical standards, but actually you don't have to show that it's got superior benefit in humans. Carl Hennigan from the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford. He's been doing some work looking into the evidence behind the efficacy of some of these medical devices. It sort of reminds me a lot of the sort of idea 50 years ago when we had medications and we used to release them on the market and we used to see what happened. And we all know what happened in them systems because you ended up with thalidomide, which caused substantial harm, but at the outset looked like it was beneficial. It worries me that there are devices coming on the market that will be inferior. So, for instance, if you've got a hip and it lasts 10 years and you have a 2% failure rate, any new treatment should get you more years or less failure. But actually, the opposite can happen. Devices are constantly being developed and changed, and this happens at a much more rapid pace than in pharmaceuticals. Substantial equivalent allows manufacturers to make small tweaks, for example to a battery, without a lengthy and expensive clinical trial, which would stifle innovation. But, as the ASR HIP shows, the current regulation for these devices isn't working properly, and the balance needs to be moved back towards patient safety. Back to you, Andrew. Thanks, Duncan. Now, Tom, it's slightly unusual to imagine, isn't it, if you had a new medicine that was a little bit different, you could, as it were, get away without doing a new battery of tests in humans. But do you think diagnostics, for example, one type of medical device, is one where it's right to have a different set of rules for regulatory approval? I'm French, and France is quite a good example on on that, actually. We have been trying to implement rapid tests for HIV in France for the past three or four years. These are tests that have been approved in a number of other European countries, in Belgium, in the Netherlands, in Switzerland. They are used routinely in the US. And I know French NGOs are still fighting with the French 
regulatory bodies and the French Health Ministry to get them approved in France, where the WHO rules say that if such a device is approved in three different countries of the same standard, then it means that it's internationally approved. So it should be approved in France, but it's not. Yeah, it's interesting, Diana, as well. I know that, for example, there's an argument for the medical devices industry that actually the regulatory standard is higher in the US, but it hasn't led to greater safety, for example, compared to Europe, where there's been more rapid uptake of innovative devices. Yeah, I think there are a number of problems. I mean, we looked at this at the Science Council some years ago and called for there to be a head of scientific technologies in the NHS, because not only is there, there's also local decision making, there's a lack of consistency. We don't know whether things work long term. And it isn't just things that are actually in patients and used directly with patients. It's also the other technologies or the testing equipment. We don't know how good and how much of an improvement they are. And actually, a lot of money is also wasted on those because there's not the sufficient training. Nobody uses the information well. So it is actually not a very well thought through structure pretty well anywhere. And I'm not sure that when we did the research, we found a country with a model we wanted to copy. Because one of the other challenges is that even these devices that you insert like artificial hips or stents involve surgery which is still a much more of a sort of craftsman-like and maybe more difficult profession to regulate than drug dosing with a pretty consistent pill that you just swallow or you inject. Now let's hear a completely different application of science in the service of art to detect fakes, study art history and help restore old master paintings. I talked to Ashok Roy, Director of Science at the National Gallery, about the role science has to play, asking him first how he came to enter into this unusual field. I'm a chemist by background. I was very lucky to get a job at the National Gallery many years ago. I came to work here for a woman called Joyce Plesters, who was a very important figure in our field. She really was the person who invented, in this country at any rate, the technical study of old master pictures. And she, she's a very unusual person. She was both a chemist and an art historian by training, and it's exactly the combination you need for this field. And I, I worked for her for 10 years. So. And what's been, do you think, the greatest contribution that science has brought in, in recent years to both the study and the restoration work around art? I think some sense that we're able to take care of these very important treasures in a way that will guarantee their future. And that is an overriding responsibility of a collection such as this. It obviously looks to provide interest and pleasure and enjoyment for people now, but also we are charged with the responsibility of protecting this collection for future generations. You hosted also last year a fascinating exhibition partly around fakes and counterfeits and so on. How, how important is that part of, of scientific scholarship in art these days? I think it's all part of understanding what the collection is, what the pictures are that we have in our collection. It's not really to do with seeking out fakes, of which there are extremely few in this collection. It's more to do with understanding the history of the making of pictures and to provide the public with more information about what they are and who made them and what materials were used in making them and so forth. What else is important really today in your armoury, as it were, of techniques? I think it's really analysis and new developments of analysis for the materials of painting, and this is becoming more sophisticated all the time. And one very particular development that's taken place in the last decade or so 
is the increasing use of what's called non-invasive technology to study works of art, where no sample is required to tell you something about the material nature of a picture. The development of non-invasive technologies has some way to go from the point of view of the studies we need to make because old master pictures are very multi-layered objects and almost all these techniques work on the surface of an object and therefore will not provide analytical information about what lies beneath the surface. However, there are imaging techniques which do go beneath the surface. X-rays, which are very classical means of studying pictures, is one method. And we also get a great deal now out of infrared imaging of paintings, which shows a number of features beneath the surface, but very particularly will reveal underdrawings made by painters is as preliminary designed for the pictures that they create on top of those underdrawings. Any particular areas of research that you personally are particularly proud of? Personally, I've been most interested in the history of use of pigments. And over the years working here, it's been possible to reveal the use of a number of new materials, or to us, new materials, which hadn't been identified before in painting. So that all adds to the history of the technology of painting, and so I've been pleased to be part of that. That was Ashok Roy from the National Gallery. What you couldn't hear there was in the background, we were looking at a computer screen, looking at some electron microscopy of a cross-section through a tiny pinhead layer of paint. And what was fascinating, you see three different layers with the materials used for the oil and the base and so on as well. Absolutely fascinating. Bertrand, you saw the exhibition, I think, that the National Gallery did last year on counterfeits, didn't you? Yes, I did. And it it was really fascinating and and quite inspiring, actually, because we can sort of cross inspiration there. Because when you see all the improvements that painters have tried to put into their paintings and changes that they've made and changes that happened over the years and over the centuries to colours in a painting, for example, it can inspire you when you think of the way science can be implemented to programmes on the ground and the way you're trying to improve the life of people. It sort of makes sense to, to link the two, I think. I can't help feeling as well, Diana, it would be nice to see a lot more in art criticism and descriptions around exhibitions that we go to see that do talk about the science and the research. Absolutely, and what a lovely phrase, taking care of the treasures for the future. I mean, using science to do that, but also his love of colour. I mean, we've learned so much from the science understanding the pigments. And we'll hope to see a little bit more of the art scholarship of Ashok Roy and others in a big exhibition on Leonardo that they're hosting at the end of this year. So that's all we have time for today. All that's left for me is to thank my studio guests, Bertrand Audouin and Diana Garnham, and to thank Duncan Jarvis for the BMJ contribution. FT Science is produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Andrew Jack. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.